Well, man, it's great having you guys here. Good morning. Welcome to Local Church. We are thrilled to have you guys here today. I know I say that every single Sunday, but man, I absolutely love it. Love what we get to do together. Love what we get to be part of together. So thank you for being a huge part of what God is doing in and through our church. Um, there's a phrase that you probably all remember from your parents. Uh, maybe it's the phrase that they always shouted at you as you left the house. It was the phrase that you just think back to. For me, I remembered the phrase constantly, make good choices. That was the phrase. It was like, hey, mom, dad, I'm heading to work. All right, great. Make good choices. Hey, mom, dad, I'm leaving. I'm heading to school. All right, great. Make good choices. Have a good day. It was like constantly make good choices. Uh, just with our kids getting ready to start back in school this week, which parents, that's a thing. You ready for that one? Yeah, it's both, isn't it? Yes. We are in the same tension of we're excited for you to go back, but we're going to miss you man, we got to start doing bedtimes again, like that whole thing. Uh, but with my three kids, so they're going into grades fifth, third, and first grade, I started to think specifically this, this last week and studying, preparing for today, what phrase will my kids remember from me? Like, which one is that? I mean, I most certainly tell them to make good choices, but I don't think that's going to be the one that they always remember. If I were to guess, it's going to be this phrase, pay attention, pay attention. I feel like I say that all the time. Just yesterday, my daughter, she was on her scooter, had her helmet on, and was heading over to a friend's house a few, few uh, doors down. And as she heads down the driveway, that driveway, adults, leads to a street, a road. And as I watch her go down, I was like, she's not watching at all. She's not going to see it. So I yell from the front of the driveway, pay attention, Collins, because those drivers are not going to pay attention to you. I tell my boys this all the time. They'll get a little rough running around and stuff. Like, whoa, 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 pay attention. There's a lamp right there. There's a couch over here. There's breakable things, including your sister, all around you. Pay attention. I just say that all the time. And here's what I've discovered. It's not that they are not paying attention. Again, my daughter, she was on her scooter heading down. She was paying attention to a lot of different things. She was paying attention to a scooter. She was paying attention to go see her friend. She was paying attention to the driveway. She paid enough attention to put a helmet on. So she was paying attention to a lot of things. She was not paying attention to the most important thing in that moment, which would have been the street with the cars that go up and down it. She was paying attention, but not to the right thing. And I think that's the same for us as well. We pay attention well. We do. We pay attention to a lot of different things things. Our attention is needed from a lot of different people. So it's not, are we paying attention? That's not the right question. The right question is, what are we paying attention to? Today's our last day in our study of Psalms. We spent this whole summer going through different Psalms. And, and as you've heard and as you've seen, if you've been here for any part of it, the response is always the same. No matter the Psalm, no matter the psalmist, the author, no matter the situation or circumstance, the response is always worship. And the reason we have to pay attention to that is because attention and worship, they are connected. They are connected. So think of it in this way. We will worship what we give our attention to. We all have attention. Like you, it's a commodity. You have attention to give. So it's not, are you giving attention or are you paying attention? We most certainly are. The question is, what do we pay attention to? Who are we giving our attention to? 
Because please don't make the mistake. We will worship what we give our attention to. What has our focus, what has held us captive, what has our attention is what we will end up worshiping. So throughout Psalms, if we are called to worship, and our response is always to worship, we need to make sure that we're not just paying attention, but we are paying attention to God. So here's how we're going to do this. We're going to be in Psalm 19. Uh, if you've got your Bible, be there. I'll put the verses up on the screen, but I think it'd be helpful for you to see it right here as well. Uh, before we jump in, though, this is going to stretch some of you, so just prepare yourself mentally for what's about to happen, okay? I'm making a few of you nervous. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take 30 seconds and get our attention focused on God. You came in here just like I did, and your attention is scattered. Your attention is on all kinds of different things. You're trying to pay attention to what we're doing here, but you're also thinking about what's coming next and what we need to do later and how you're going to get your kids to school and all the things. Like, that's a real deal. So can we just take 30 seconds? I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to stop talking. And I want you to get your attention on God for a few minutes. So 30 seconds of just quiet, calm, refocus your attention. Then I'll pray and we'll jump into Psalm 19. Let's do that together. God, we confess that our attention gets pulled in so many different directions. God, in this moment, through your Holy Spirit, would you help direct our attention solely to you and on you? Quiet our minds, calm our spirits. Push out any distractions for the next few moments. May we be attentive to you as we open your word. Holy Spirit, help us to put our attention back on you. Speak, Lord, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Psalm 19. Uh, there's three, well, for, good job on that, by the way. That was the hardest thing some of you have done in a very long time. 30 seconds of quiet is hard. Here's what we're going to do. So Psalm 19 is broken up into three sections. Let me walk you through the sections, then we're going to go through it. The very first section, you're going to notice that David, the psalmist here, is saying, pay attention to what's around you. Pay attention to your surroundings. That's part one. Part two, he transitions, and now David says, pay attention to God's word. Pay attention to what God says and how he speaks to us. So pay attention to our surroundings, what's around us. Pay attention to what God says through his word. And then the third section of Psalm 19 is, and here's my response. If I pay attention to what's around me, and I pay attention to God's word, then that's going to lead me to do something. It's going to cause a response, and we know if you read through Psalms, this, the response is always worship. So we're going to see that progression. We're going to see those different parts. Let's look at that together. Verse 1, Psalm 19, here's the first part. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone out throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. 
It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and it follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. Here David is writing this. We know that if you read just before the beginning of verse 1, we know that David is the writer. We do not necessarily know when he wrote this, but just in reading this first section, it sounds like this is from the perspective of what did David do before he became king? Do you remember he was a, he was a shepherd? It almost sounds like shepherd. Now, in some con, if you read into the context, there's some context clues that makes us believe that David wrote this as a king, but it almost feels like he's remembering back. Like, could you imagine being a shepherd boy, then becoming a king where you're not out in the wilderness as much, thinking back to, oh man, I, I kind of miss the times where I would look up and it was just me, God, and a bunch of sheep. It feels like he's reminiscing a little bit there, but probably wrote it as a king, but he's thinking back to his moments as a shepherd boy. And he's talking about how God is speaking by the surroundings. I mean, even the language he uses, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. Skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. They make him known. Even though it's not a voice and even though it's not with a word, creation is speaking and proclaiming and putting on display its creator, right? And that's what creation does. What God has created always points back to the creator. Creation points to the creator. So when we see creation, it pushes us to recognize God, who he is, and the response to worship him. Right? So when we're outside and outside in creation, we see the glory of God. We see his power. We see his majesty. We see his glory. We see his beauty. We see his skill. We see all those things by his creation, and it points to the creator, David's saying, pay attention. Pay attention to what he's created around you. Now, you might love nature. You might not care so much about it, but here's the reality. Every single one of us has been out in creation today, right? Even if it was just from your house to the car and from the car inside this building today, we have all been outside. Here's the other reality is most likely, me included, we did not stop and marvel at the beauty of God's creation in those moments this morning already, most likely, if you're like me, it was a rush to get out the door, make sure everybody's dressed appropriately, and we need to get in the van. And then we get into the van, and then we have to quickly move from the van all the way into the church. And we need to end all the arguments in the van, because my goodness, by the time we get into church, we're going to like each other. So by the time all that happens, you get in, you're like, praise God, it's a glorious day. You're like, you didn't pay attention to the day whatsoever, right? We're, we, we don't always pay attention, do we? Again, it's not are we paying attention, it's what are we paying attention to. Just because we're out in the middle of it, out in the middle of his creation, doesn't mean we're always paying attention to what that says about our creator, what that says about our God and who he is. There's always this tension for our attention. Think of it in this way. If you were to go on a hike, whether you like hiking or not, imagine with me, you're going on a hike and on this hike, you are drawn to pay attention to the beauty around you. You want to pay attention to the sky and the clouds and the trees and just all the wildlife. You want to pay attention to the beauty around you, but there's a tension. Because also on this hike, it's very rocky. If you're walking along a, a, a hiking trail, it's rocky, there's a lot of roots, and so your tension is pulled down to your feet. Because you need to make sure that you don't trip so that you don't fall, so that you navigate the trail well. You need to pay attention to make sure you go the right way so you don't get off course and get lost. 
So there's this tension of I want to pay attention to the beauty, but I also need to pay attention to where I'm going. That tension is not just with hiking, church. That's with us every single day. I want to pay attention to God. I want to pay attention to his creation. I want to pay attention to all he's doing in me. I want to pay attention to what he's doing around me. I want to pay attention, but man, I got a lot going on right now. I just got to move quickly. I got to keep my head down. I got to make sure that I don't misstep. I got to make sure I don't miss this. I've got these responsibilities. I've got this I have to get done. There is a tension for our attention. Is my attention on God or is my attention on just taking the road I need to take? So what's the solution for that? Some tensions we just have to deal with, other ones we can actually begin to solve. I think this one is actually one we can begin to solve. Here's the solution, at least I think. Slow down. Slow down. Go back to hiking. If you're hiking and you want to see beauty, don't walk as fast. You might even get to a point where you actually stop. Take a break. Take it all in. And then go back to, I need to keep walking. And then you slow down, you pause, you stop, you take a break, and you look around, and you begin to see what God is doing. Again, when we think of creation, we tend to just think of, like the language David used here, the heavens and the sky and the trees and the earth and those things. Think of the other things that God has created. He's created opportunities around you. Are you paying attention to the opportunities he's created for you? What about relationships? God has created relationships and created people to put in your life for a certain season. Are you paying attention to the relationships God is creating and cultivating in your life right now? We're told that he's created new life in us. For those that call Jesus Lord and Savior, are you paying attention to the new life he's creating in you? Are you paying attention to not just creation out there, but also creation around you? And if we're not careful, we'll miss it. We'll be paying attention, but to the wrong thing. And again, our attention and worship are connected. So slow down. David feels like he's, he's leading us in that way. Slow down. Don't be too quick to move forward. Are you paying attention to the creator and what he is doing around you? All right, so there's the first part. Pay attention to your surroundings. Then he transitions. Part two is he's going to focus on God's word. Here's how David's going to do that in a very poetic way. He's going to take a name of God's word. Then he's going to give a description of God's word. Then he's going to give a result of God's word. So let me show you what that looks like. Verse seven, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. All right, so let's do that. Pay attention, right? Here it is. The name of God's word used here, the instructions of the Lord. There's a description of God's word. What was it? They are perfect. And the result of God's word in our life, what did he say? It revives our soul. He's going to do that several times in a row. Take a name of God's word, a description of God's word, and the result of God's word in our life. So let's dissect this one just a little bit. So God's word is perfect, whole, complete, and it revives our soul. So often when we are worried when we are getting tired, when we are weary, when we are exhausted, we try to fill ourselves with something that keeps us going, right? We all kind of have those things or those vices of, man, when things start to get a little bit difficult, I need to fill my life with something so that I can keep going. Here, David is saying, no, when you're weary, when you're worried, when you're tired, we go to God's word because it is complete. It's everything we need. It is whole. It is perfect. 
And the result of going to God's word is our soul is revived. Here, do this with me. We're going to do a little exercise here. I want you to take a deep breath in. Ready? And then out. All right, I'm going to make sure every single person does it this time because I can tell if you're doing it or not. Ready? Do it again. Big breath in. And out. Even if you're not a believer, even if you don't have a faith, there's a phrase that's pretty common, right? It's take a breath, right? Take a breath. Why do we say that? We say that because to take a breath causes you to slow down, causes you to pause just for a little bit. It also is filling your body with life. When things become troublesome, we need life. So God's word is perfect and that gives us just a glimpse. When you take that deep breath in, that gives you just a glimpse of what God's word does for us. It's as if God is breathing life into you and into me. So when we're worried, when we're tired, when we're weary, we go to God's word. His word is perfect and he breathes life into it. He revives our soul. The second part of verse seven, again, Notice the same progression here. The decrees of the Lord, there's the name of God's word, are trustworthy description, making wise the simple. There's the result. So the decrees of the Lord are trustworthy. They are reliable. We can depend on his word. He can be trusted. His word can be trusted, which then the result is the simple are made wise. We are all simple. Simple in a biblical definition basically means we are not capable, capable of making good decisions all the time on our own. Congratulations, that is all of us. We do not make good decisions all the time on our own. So we need wisdom to help us make those decisions. Now there is worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. That is a whole nother message in Proverbs. We don't have time for that today. But godly wisdom comes from God's word. It does not necessarily come from you and your experience. Oftentimes, that's what we think. Well, I, I lived a long life. I've got a lot of experience in this field or in this situation, so that makes me wise. According to the world standards, yes. According to God's standards, not necessarily. Wisdom come, godly wisdom comes from his word because it's trustworthy, and it helps us make right decisions. Uh, there's a kind of a phrase, and you might have heard this somewhere else as well. God's word oftentimes is described in two ways, a mirror and a map. So as a mirror, you hold it up and you say, all right, here's God's standard of living. Here's what God desires. Here's the heart of God, the character of God. And I'm going to compare that to my life, right? We looked at that last week a little bit more in depth with David and Bathsheba, where according to God's word, what he did was wrong. He missed the bullseye according to God. So it's a mirror. It gives us a good reflection of who we are, who God says we are, and who God is. But it also can be used as a map, meaning I don't have to know every direction. I don't need to know all the right answers, but I need God's word to lead, direct, and guide me. We went to a friend's house uh, towards the end of last week, and I have did something I haven't done in probably, I don't know, like 15, 20 years. Do you know MapQuest is still a thing? Um, yes, I know! MapQuest is a real thing still. Those of you that don't know what MapQuest is, man, you are missing out on the world before your phone did it for you. So here's what I did. So I, I put in, this is how MapQuest works. Those of you of a, of a younger generation, here's what you have to do. You get online, you log into your AOL account, and that's how the generations are known, by that statement right there. 
So you go to MapQuest and you put in your address of where you're starting. So I put in our home address. And then in another line, I put in the friend's address where I wanted to end up. So you just put in those two addresses. And then watch this. This is going to be amazing. It's going to blow your mind. Then you print out how to get there. So this is awesome. So again, I didn't know exactly how to get there. So I put it in and I've got four pages of directions on how to get to their house. So I start out by going straight. Then in 0.2 miles, I'm going to take a left. In another 0.8 miles, I'm going to make another left. In 0.13 miles, I'm going to take a slight left. But here's the point. I don't know hardly any of these roads. If you were to come up to me and say, Brian, can you point on a map where that road is? I'm like, not a clue. No idea where that road is. I don't know where that's at. And I don't need to know necessarily. I need to trust my directions and I need to follow those directions. And if I follow these directions, even if I don't fully understand, and even if I still feel pretty lost and confused along the way, if I follow these directions, how they are written, not inserting my own thoughts and feelings into it, I will end up where I'm supposed to end up. God's word is trustworthy, making wise the simple. Our wisdom comes from his word. So if you feel lost, if you're feeling a little confused, and I don't know which way I'm supposed to go, we go to God's word because that's where wisdom is found. Here's the next part. Verse 8, the commandments of the Lord, name of God's word, are right, bringing joy to the heart. Name of God's word, description, and then a result. God's word is right, and it brings joy. This is a, when I did student ministry specifically, I felt like I got a lot of questions, even like some challenges on this concept, that God's word is right. The commands of God's word are right. His commandments, the way that he calls us to live is right, and it brings joy. And the the conversation or that even conflict that would ensue is a lot of students, I've had this conversation with adults, but mainly students are like, but God's word is full of like rules and, and command. It even says commands, decrees and instructions. And, and instead of it leading to joy, a lot of students would say, it feels like it's just restrictive. Like God's not wanting us to have a lot of fun. Like he's just a kill joy, not a giver of joy. Couple of things here. First of all, let's let's be clear. Sin can be fun. It absolutely has to be. If sin was not fun and appealing, no one would do it. There has to be a draw there. Is it that that God is saying don't have fun? He's like, no, but let's do it within the boundaries. Let's do it within my commands. Right? God is protecting us. He loves us. He wants us to live a full life full of joy, yes, based upon his word. Here's another way to think about it. As a pastor, I get the privilege to do a lot of weddings. I love doing weddings. It's it's a very joyful day. So the way that a wedding works, if you're not familiar, is I'll have a bride and a groom stand up front in front of me and God and all the friends and family. And it is so sweet. Like they're just like all dressed up and they got all the wedding party up there. And then we read some scriptures about how God created marriage and family and just how love works. And we read like 1 Corinthians 13, how love never fails. Like it is a beautiful moment. And then we get to this part where I start reading off a list of vows and promises where I will say, now you are committing to one another. And you might know some of these words. 
to love one another no matter what in sickness and in health, for richer or poor. And then it's like just kind of a generic statement. You know what? Like just for better or worse, no matter what happens, you're committing to forsake all others. Like that word forsake's a big word. You will not have this kind of intimate relationship with anyone else, forsaking all others, holding only to this person forevermore till, what's the end of it? Till death do us part. And I finished reading that and you know what's never happened to me? I, I'm waiting for it. Like one of these days it has to, but I've never had a bride or a groom after going through their vows say, whew, um, man, that, I didn't realize it was so much. Uh, Pastor, that feels extremely restrictive. You mean I have to be only with this one person no matter what for the rest of our life? Like literally death is the only way out? I'm supposed to be happy about this? Like this is supposed to be like joy in the rest of... And I don't know if I can do that. I thought this was just like, hey, well, it worked out. No. No, what happens is the groom's over there like tearing up and like the, the bride is handing the clean and they're doing all this. And like, no, I do. I absolutely do. And then as soon as they say I do, like everybody's excited and we, we use the word joy in this joyful moment of exchanging vows. I now pronounce you husband and wife. So how is that full of joy when they literally promise to restrict their lives for the rest of their physical lives. Here's why. Because the joy is coming from a relationship. If there's marital problems later on, it's because those vows were not upheld and that relationship is now fractured and there's not joy there. Joy comes from there being a right relationship. So when we say God's word is right and it brings joy to the heart, that means that God's word shows us how to have a right relationship with God. And when we have a right relationship with God, the result is always joy. Do this with me. I want you to think back to one of your big regrets. Don't say it out loud. Please don't say it out loud. Think about it. What is one of your biggest regrets? I bet, you're not supposed to bet in church, but I'm gonna bet for a second. I bet that your regret came out of ignoring God's word in some way. I bet that your regret came from not following God's word in some way. Now, there's probably an exception here or there. But when I think back on my regrets, it's because I wanted to do what I wanted to do, not what he told me to do. It's because I was choosing my direction instead of following his direction. It's because I was not following his word that was right. And it brought a fractured relationship, not joy. Joy comes from a right relationship. And that right relationship we are told about in his word. So if you find yourself troubled, if you find yourself, yourself filled with shame and guilt, go to God's word. You will not find guilt. You will not find shame. You will find joy and peace. Next part here. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for the living. So the word of God is clear. The result is it gives us insight for living. The word clear there could almost be translated pure, but we usually think of something else when we think of pure or purify or purity, so that's why we use the word clear in this translation. 
Clear, here's the opposite of that, clouded judgment. We've all heard that phrase before, clouded judgment. And the reality is we are always making decisions with clouded judgment, some more than others and others at different times. But we all make judgments with a sense of of cloudiness. It's not super clear. Here's why. Because every decision we make, there's other factors that are coming in to that decision-making process. For example, our judgment is clouded because of our past experience. Maybe we've been hurt before, so that impacts our future decision-making. We can have clouded judgment based on our current situation. If we're really stressed right now, that is going to cloud our judgment and our decision-making. When we are hungry, it clouds our judgment. We don't think as clearly. Our judgment gets clouded because of a financial crisis or a financial situation. We don't make decisions clearly. Basically, you take any feeling, any emotion, any want, any need, any desire, and that will cloud your judgment. So if we are not capable of making clear judgments all the time, we already read that we need God's word to be this mirror and this map, but we also just need clarity on, so how am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to think? What am I supposed to say? How do I interact with this person? How do I interact at home? How do I interact with people in my workplace? How do I interact with people that are difficult or don't agree with me? And we need clarity because we don't have the ability. Our judgment is always clouded, so we go to God's word that is clear so that we can gain insight for living. So if you find yourself unsure, and maybe just a little like, man, I don't even know what to do. I don't know what to think. I don't know how to navigate this situation. I don't know how to live uh, according to God's word in this environment. We go to God's word because his word is clear and it gives us insight for living. The next section here, he begins to just rattle off some truths or facts about God's word. Verse 9, reverence for the Lord is pure. If you grow up in a church that uh, always read like King James Version, you would read that verse as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord and reverence for the Lord is the same idea. So verse 9, reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. Let's break those up into the two parts. First one is God's word It lasts forever. It is eternal. It does not change, period, because God doesn't change. We're told that God's, that Jesus, same yesterday, today, tomorrow. God's word is the same. Same yesterday, same today, same tomorrow. But that's not the case for everything, is it? No, a lot of things do change. Some things most certainly should change. For example, we're going to go back into my life. Goodness, it was a little bit ago. There it is, 1993. Let's, let's dissect everything wrong with this picture just for a minute. So this is me, my mom, and my sister in Disney in 1993. And can we just call it out right now? The fanny packs are the first thing you see, right? So in 1993, the brighter the color and the bigger the fanny pack, the cooler you were. So you see my bright neon yellow fanny pack. My sister had a fanny pack, but it was like the size of a bus. I mean, this thing was mad. You could fit inside her fanny pack. Now, for some reason, this has started to become trendy again, and I don't understand why. It should have been left in 1993. Don't bring those things back. I remember seeing one at a store. I'm like, why are they back? Leave them alone. No, but it kind of comes back for some reason. Let's also talk about the jean shorts for a second. 
Man, if you're a jean shorts person, you're my people. I still haven't given these up completely. But you got the jean shorts, you got the tucked in shirt to the jean shorts. Now, some of you might think that's still cool. For like an eight-year-old, it's not. My kids will be the first to tell me, I can't, why would you wear that? In fact, if they saw this picture, what was wrong with you? (laughs) Why did, my mom, she goes by the name Gigi as a grandparent. Why did Gigi let you go out in public like that? And then trying to explain, well, it was cool back then. Not so much today. You can't see very well, but under that hat is glasses. I wore glasses as a kid. And those glasses had the thick bar right over the top of them. You remember those? Once again, they're starting to come back. It almost gives me PTSD. It was made fun of as a kid because of those thick rim glasses and the bars over top. I was like, and I see them now. I'm like, why are you doing that? Yeah, it's trendy. Do you even have like prescription? No. I'm like, don't understand. That's a whole nother thing. We'll let our student pastor deal with that one. But what was trendy or what was cool then has changed over time. So we are used to things changing. And it kind of throws us for a loop when we read something about God's word that says God's word or reverence for the Lord is pure lasting forever, ever, meaning it's pure, does not need to change, does not change. And we will get into trouble, church, if as believers we start to go through and see God's word, and God's word tells us it's pure, not needing to be changed, and it's pure, and it lasts forever, and we start saying, well, I don't know if this applies anymore. Like, it's not 1993 anymore. Or that was just for back then, You do need to look at context, without a doubt. A lot of things, especially Old Testament, are written for a certain people, a group of people for a certain time. But you cannot make that statement for all of God's word. His word is true. His word is pure, not changing. So we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of starting to change things just because our times begin to change. Then the second part, the laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. Let's talk about the idea of God's word being true. Jesus actually speaks to this, his own language. He says, man, if you're truly following me, if you really believe me, then you will be faithful to my commands. And then he says this phrase that's pretty famous. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will, can you finish it? Set you free. Yeah, right there. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's a beautiful statement. Let's look at the other side of that too. Because if that's true, that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. The opposite is also true, which would say that lies lies enslave you or hold you captive. So if the truth sets you free, lies will enslave you. For a Christian, this might be the, the biggest battle you will have to face in your Christian life, is the truth and the lies. The truth and the lies. What does God's word say that is true? What lies am I hearing? What does God say is true and what lies am I believing? The truth will set us free. The lies will hold us captive and enslave us. The next section, David just says, and this is how good God's word is. Verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. Notice what David's doing here. He's taking two extremes. He's taking wealth and then pleasure and saying God's word's better than both. He says, anything that you could obtain or gain, the finest gold, God's word is better. And then he goes to the other side, he's like, anything you could experience, anything that you could taste, it's sweeter than anything you could possibly experience. It's better than anything you could have and anything you could experience. And then we get to the third part, the response. 
So you take the pay attention to the world around you. Pay attention to what God's doing around you. Pay attention to what he's creating, creating around you. Pay attention to God's word. Pay attention to the results of God's word in your life. And then David responds. And if you know anything about what we studied in Psalms, the response is always worship. Here's his response. Verse 12. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. In other words, I can't do these on my own. Don't let them control me. I need your help. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. To boil that all down, after David says, pay attention to what God's doing around you, pay attention to God's word and what it does in you, David says, so God, change me. Oh, what a beautiful, worshipful posture. God, change me. Help me to pay attention to you and only you. I have attention to give. And God, I only want to give that attention to you and I only want to worship you because I pay attention to what you're doing around me. I pay attention to the truths of your word and what your word does in me. And my response is I want to just be changed by you. I want you to shape my heart, mold my heart. We looked at last week in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, oh God. God, I want you to do a work in me. I want you to change me to make me more and more like you the way that your word would describe. It's a beautiful worship psalm. Pay attention, pay attention. And our response is worshiping God. Now, what David does here, he has beautiful words and beautiful language to, to describe this psalm, Psalm 19. But what makes it more beautiful, beautiful for us today is what this psalm points to. So if we go all the way from Psalm 19 to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 14, listen to what happens. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. David just described in Psalm 19 the name of God's word, a description of God's word, and then the result of God's word in our life. John 1.14 does the exact same thing. The word became human. What's his name? Jesus. The word became flesh. The word became human. His name is Jesus. And he came with, description, unfailing love and faithfulness. Jesus came full of unfailing love and faithfulness to change our lives, to give us life. If we were to go back to Psalm 19 and what we went through in regards to how David described God's word, you know what's fascinating? We can do the exact same thing with Jesus. Let me walk you through it real quick. We're told that the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. We can say that about Jesus. Jesus is perfect and revives us. The very definition of revive is to go from dead to alive. Paul was very clear in his epistles. That's what Jesus does. He raises us to life, to new life. As soon as we come into a right relationship with him, that's by his grace and our faith in him. God's word is trustworthy and gives us wisdom. Jesus is trustworthy and he guides us. We rely on Jesus. We depend on Jesus. We need Jesus because we are weak and he is strong. And he's the one that guides us. When we don't know what to do or where to go, it's Jesus that always leads us. 
Jesus is righteous and brings joy. We are told that God's word is right and brings joy to our heart. Jesus is righteous and brings us joy, again, because of the relationship. Our sin separates us from God, but because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his righteousness has been credited to us. So now that we can have a right relationship with God, scripture tells us that God sees Christ's righteousness in us. Not because we are righteous, but because Jesus did that for us. So Jesus is righteous and brings us joy. Jesus is clear and shows us how to live. He walked among us. He experienced everything you and I will ever experience. He was tempted just like you and I are constantly tempted, yet he did not sin. In fact, if you know the story leading up to Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, Jesus spent some of his last moments washing his disciples' feet. He showed us what it looks like to live. He shows us what it looks like to love. He showed us what it looks like to love God, but also to love the people around us by serving, by serving with everything we have, sacrificing and giving up so much for the sake of others. The last part where David talked about God's word is eternal, God's word lasts forever, and it is true. We can say the same thing about Jesus. Jesus is alive, and he gives us hope. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his death is part of the story. It's not the entire story. And his resurrection means Jesus is alive, and he lasts forever. And because of his sacrifice and his resurrection, he gives us the free gift of eternal life through his grace. So we get to have the same hope of being in heaven for all of eternity with him. That's where our hope comes from. So where does, where does that leave us? A whole summer on worship, a whole summer on Psalms. Where does that leave us with this fact? Jesus' words, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, period. Jesus is the way. He gives us direction. He gives us insight. He gives us wisdom. He gives us clarity. He says, I am the truth, never changing. Although we have clouded judgment, he does not. So our truth comes from him. And he says, I'm the life. He revives our soul, gives us hope for all of eternity because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Here's how I want us to end. Romans chapter 12, verse one. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. We have attention, and that attention is pulled in so many different directions. May we give God our attention in this moment and worship him, not just by the things that we do and the things we give up, but as Paul would say, as a living and holy sacrifice, every moment of our lives, can we give him attention? Let the distractions fall away. Give him our attention and worship him solely. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for all that you've done. Help us to pay attention to what you are doing around us right now, what you're doing in us and how you're leading us. Jesus, thank you so much for being the word that became human and walked among us. 
to show us how to live, to show us truth, to show us how to love you and to love the people around us. May we give you our full attention. Even in the the steps we need to take to go through our everyday lives, may we slow down, pause, and stop long enough to pay attention to you. Remove the distractions. Hold us captive. In Jesus' name, amen.